Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Transgenders, One Father of Us All. It's based upon the lectionary text for Sunday, August the 2nd, 2015. At church on Sunday, a transgender teenager made me think of four other transgender people I've come to know. I don't know these people well, but they're enough on my social radar that I think about them a lot. Three of them are very much church people. One, Joan Roughgarden, a biologist at Stanford who wrote a book on Christianity and evolution, contributed a guest essay to Journey with Jesus a few years ago. And now, of course, there's Caitlin. The summer after my junior year in college, Bruce Jenner won the gold medal in the decathlon at the 1976 Olympics. He was a quintessential man's man, complete with an appearance on the weedy cereal box and the moniker of the world's greatest athlete. This past April, just a few months ago, in an interview with Diane Sawyer on 2020, Jenner came out as a transgender woman and changed her name to Caitlin. She was 65 years old. In June, she appeared in a cover shoot for Vanity Fair by Annie Leibovitz. And so the world's greatest athlete became the world's most famous transgender person. Caitlin also identifies herself as a Christian who votes Republican. It's unfortunate that her story is wrapped up in so much melodrama, much of it of her own making. But that was inevitable given her fame, three marriages, multiple reality shows, and a net worth of $100 million. But sadder still is the default response of human nature to something strange or foreign or different, or other, which tends to be fear, shaming, and scapegoating. Transgender people have experienced way too much violence and discrimination, along with cheap jokes by late-night comedians. Christians have participated in these denigrations. In her book, See Me Naked, Amy Frickholm tells the stories of nine sexual exiles who have had to live in the wilderness beyond the walls of the church because of our unhealthy views about sex and the sacred. This doesn't have to be. <clears throat> After all, there's a lot of complicated sex in our sacred Bible. And if you don't take the easy way out by moralizing or sentimentalizing, these biblical texts make for difficult reading. Adam and Eve and the shame of their nakedness. What a profoundly archetypal story. Lot's drunken sex with his two daughters in Genesis 19. Gang rape and mutilation in Judges 19. Solomon's thousand wives and concubines in 1 Kings 11 a woman who burned through five marriages in John 4, which reminds me of the time I laughed when a friend told me that his mother had been married five times. 
Then I realized he wasn't joking. Of course, I felt horrible. A woman caught in the act of adultery by the religious police in John 8. A prostitute who fondles Jesus' feet in Luke 7. A man sleeping with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5. In Revelation 14, sex is both dangerous and dirty. For we read that heaven is populated with men who have not defiled themselves by having sex with women. It would be easy to make this list longer. I honestly believe that if our Gospels were written today, they might include a Jesus story about a transgender person. The readings this week from 2 Samuel 11 and Psalm 51 about David's adultery show why this is so. This is arguably the most famous story about sex in the Bible. David had at least eight wives and ten concubines. When more than enough wasn't enough, he took one more woman, Bathsheba, and murdered her husband, Uriah. Given that ancient peoples often divinized their kings and sanitized their faults, it makes you wonder why the narrator included this unsavory story. And in fact, in the parallel version in 1 Chronicles 20, the author omits David's adultery. But here's the real shocker. Our own Christian story begins on page one of the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew burnishes Jesus' credentials by name-dropping Abraham and King David. Next to Moses, the two most important people in all of Jewish history. His genealogy lists 42 men in three sets of 14 generations each. All nice and neat. Matthew then includes five sexually suspicious women in Jesus' family tree. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law Judah abused her as a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner and a prostitute who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow. Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion in murderous cover-up. Then, of course, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was unmarried and pregnant. Matthew repurposes these five salacious stories so that they become part of salvation history. God's revelation of love and redemption of the world in Jesus depends on the stories of these women. And the same is true for me and you and everyone. God takes every aspect of our little stories, including all their sordid details, and integrates them into his bigger story of love and redemption. Two months after Bruce Jenner came out as Caitlin, my wife and I watched the PBS Frontline show called Growing Up Trans. I highly recommend it. This 84-minute documentary follows a half-dozen prepubescent adolescents and their parents, 
allowing them to tell their own stories in their own words, without any prompts or responses from a narrator. Remarkably, the film avoids being either sensational or sanguine. These families face a very complex set of circumstances with difficult choices and limited options. They deserve our deepest respect, unconditional compassion, and full support. They are very brave people. Medical treatments like puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones can be very expensive, have limited research when used for children, and have uncertain side effects. Some treatments are irreversible. The kids themselves describe their experiences of bullying, loneliness, sleeplessness, suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety. Some can count on their families and friends for support. Others cannot. We shouldn't pathologize transgender persons. Gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, to use the controversial medical parlance, is not a mental illness. It's not a choice. Rather, it's a deep disconnect between a person's anatomy and their psychology their biological sexuality, and their gender identity. What transgender people need is not more spectacle and judgment, but more compassion and understanding. The church ought to be in the vanguard of such a movement. We are, after all, says Paul in Ephesians for this week, one body. What a loaded metaphor. He says, we all have one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the story of Jesus, God sums up or recapitulates our own stories, which is to say, he repurposes all things, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. He did this with Bathsheba and King David. He can do it for Caitlin, and he'll do it for you and for me. For books this week, I review a title by Pope Francis. It's called Walking with Jesus, A Way Forward for the Church. Chicago, Loyola Press, 2015. This little book is 135 pages. In fact, this is not a book in the normal sense of the word. Rather, it's a collection of 36 so-called chapters in barely 100 pages, each of which is about three pages long. They're taken from Pope Francis's encyclicals apostolic exhortations, homilies, addresses, and messages. That's what you do when you're the Pope. The selections originated as addresses to both clerics and general audiences, for example, on World Youth Day. As you would expect, there's no real thematic unity here, despite the title of the book. There are two exceptions, however. First, 
as the life of a Catholic is distinctly sacramental, one series of chapters explores the seven sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, confession, anointing, marriage, and holy orders. Another series devotes one chapter to each of the seven spiritual gifts, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Despite these limitations, there's wise advice here. Francis has shown that he's not interested in just tinkering with the structures, as the book forward put it. What he prays for is a genuine renewal of the heart and spirit of the gospel. Life is a journey, he writes, and when we stop walking and moving, things go wrong. And so, in the words of St. Paul, Pope Francis invites his readers to walk worthy of the Lord. Pope Francis, Walking with Jesus from 2015. For movies this week, I review a title called Love and Mercy, 2015. Brian Wilson was the innovative genius behind the Beach Boys, but despite his professional success, for much of his personal life, he has battled the dark demons of mental illness. This biopic follows Wilson's troubled life. His father was abusive. Substance abuse, auditory hallucinations, erratic behavior, financial insolvency, attempted suicide and nervous breakdowns, all these precipitated multiple hospitalizations. At one point, Wilson weighed over 300 pounds and spent months in bed. An abusive therapist, and in fact <clears throat> his legal guardian, Eugene Landy, played by Paul Giamatti, who was eventually disbarred from practice, actually might have saved his life. As I watched the movie, I kept wondering where the marvelous title came from. And I apologize for the spoiler, so a spoiler alert, but in a clever effect by the director Bill Polad, as the film ends and the credits roll, we watch Wilson perform his 1988 song, Love and Mercy. The refrain of which, Love and Mercy, that's what you need tonight. Love and mercy to you and your friends tonight. Elsewhere, Brian Wilson explained how he wrote this song, which became the title of the movie. He says, I was in my piano room playing what the world needs now, and I just went into my own song. Worked very hard to get out what was in my heart on that one. It's a personal message from me to people. We wanted people to be covered with love because there's no guarantee of somebody waking up in the morning with any love. It goes away like a bad dream. It disappears. Mercy would be a deeper word than love. I would think love is a gentle thing and mercy would be a more desperate, ultimately more desperately needed thing in life. Mercy, a little break here and there for somebody who's having trouble. Love and mercy is probably 
the most spiritual song I've ever written. So says Brian Wilson. And the title of the movie, Love and Mercy. For poetry this week, we posted a poem by Helen Keller. Helen Keller lived from 1880 to 1968. She was both deaf and blind. This poem is untitled. They took away what should have been my eyes, but I remembered Milton's paradise. They took away what should have been my ears. Beethoven came and wiped away my tears. They took away what should have been my tongue, but I had talked with God when I was young. He would not let them take away my soul. Possessing that, I still possess the whole. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 2nd, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.